Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Eric Gilmore. Eric is the Executive Director of Immerse Arkansas, a transitional living program in Little Rock, Arkansas. Welcome, Eric. Thank you so much for participating in our podcast series. How are you doing today? Good. And thanks for having me, Lynn. Really appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. We absolutely wanted to have you here. I want to call out before we dive in that your organization, Immerse Arkansas, won one of our awards last year for the Midsize Large category, Midsize Large Organization or Program. And I'm very happy that peers the winners from last year were the judges that they selected you as a winner. And I think that says a lot. You know, it does. The financial support is, of course, incredible. But we were really deeply moved to get that recognition or kind of that admonition from folks that know a lot about what's going on and a lot about what's needed. So that meant a ton to us. It was very encouraging. Good. Absolutely. Well, that's one of the reasons that we structure the awards program the way that we do is because we feel that that is the more important recognition and the more meaningful recognition is from your peers. And so that's why in our awards program, the winners each year then serve as the judges the following year. So I'm really happy that you were recognized last year and I want to hear all about your program and what it is that you do. But before we get to those details, could you please share more about yourself personally, your journey and what brought you to Immerse Arkansas? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the journey for me starts young. I was in a family where I was exposed to the needs of only what I knew to call then were orphans and typically overseas. So my parents often had folks in our home that were missionaries in different countries and doing different work. And I just saw lots of pictures, lots of presentations, often of hurting and starving children from a very young age. And anyway, that was just something that put this thing in my heart to want to help. I realized that I had a lot to be thankful for, a lot of resources, a lot of opportunity, and very early on realized that I wanted to do something to help kids that didn't have that. Fast forward, grew up in a town where I never heard about foster care, only heard about it overseas, and thought that I would someday move and work in an orphanage in Africa or something like that. But Went to college, met my wife who is studying social work. I had never heard of social work, but we connected on the idea of helping young people and eventually got married and just wanted to do more to help kids. She became a caseworker where we lived there for the child welfare system and quickly grew a caseload, mostly of teens. And we just started to learn more and more about teens in foster care. She brought home a calendar one time of kids who are waiting to be adopted. I'm sure you've seen that before, where it's professional pictures of kids that need a family. And it just grabbed my attention. I'm flipping through there, and there's a 17-year-old boy with a smile on his face, but also a few lines of text about what he was looking for in a family. And I just, I couldn't believe that we had young people right there in our own community that needed a family to the point that they're going to put their picture in a calendar and send it around town. But that just made us start thinking, what could we do? How else could we help? So we're 22, 23 at the time, 
and didn't think it'd make sense to try and foster and adopt a teenager that young. Felt like we'd likely be arguing over the last piece of pizza or the TV remote <laughs> or something like that. But learned about house parenting. And there's a group home that was opening up for teenagers in Arkansas, which is where my wife is from, and just said, let's do it. And we became house parents somewhere around there. I can't never think now, somewhere in our mid-20s. Drove down, and the next day we were on as house parents for teenagers in foster care, which was a kind of a real big eye-opener for us. In that process, we met a young lady named Megan. First, I'd say we just fell in love with the young people that we were serving. It was a very neat and special thing to get to do and to get to invest in young people at that level. But there's a young girl, Megan, who came to live with us before she came into foster care at age 12. She had suffered all kinds of horrible abuse and neglect. She was with us just for a brief amount of time, but ended up getting kicked out. But she kind of had grabbed our hearts and we followed her around the foster care system She ended up being in 50 different placements between the ages of 12 and 18. And right around her 18th birthday, you know, she had reached out to us and said, hey, we're, you know, having a birthday party. Come celebrate. We're going to Golden Corral. We'd love for you guys to come. We go. It's great. She says, hey, come wish me off tomorrow. Come say goodbye. I'm going to be at the Greyhound bus stop. And I'm an adult now. I'm going to be 18 and on my own. We didn't really understand what was going on, but we wanted to support her and and be there for her. So we went to the Greyhound bus stop. This was in downtown North Little Rock. And she pulled up with her caseworker and she got out. She had one bag of clothes, one night's worth of her bipolar medications. And then her caseworker bought a one-way bus pass for her to go back to live with some family members that she hadn't seen since she was 12 years old. It was the kind of thing where we just couldn't wrap our minds around what was going on. It was so hard to just mentally grasp it, to understand it, to deal with it. We just kind of gave her whatever we had in our pockets in terms of cash at the time. And, you know, we waved goodbye. But these questions started to haunt us in the process. There were specifically, as people of faith, we were like, hey, where is the church in this process? Followed by the sense of, well, hey, we're a part of the we claim to be a part of the church. And then the sense of why isn't somebody doing something followed by this kind of uncomfortable, well, maybe you should do something. And that's the just motivation that it took for us to start asking around. And, you know, as we talked with other stakeholders, they said, hey, that's not an uncommon thing. There's in Arkansas at the time, there's about 250 young people aged out every year. Not every young person They didn't have that same story. They faced some similar odds in a lot of different ways, but there was a challenge and those young people needed help. And so as we talked to folks, shared what was going on, shared what the need was, they wanted to help and get involved. And that's how Immerse came to be. Okay. Before we dive into Immerse, you've mentioned a couple of things here that I wanted to comment on. Going back to what you mentioned about the calendar. For those who aren't aware, there was a movie that came out in 2018 called Instant Family, and the father, played by Mark Wahlberg, husband at the time, and then he became a foster father, and it's based on a true story, saw a website with the stories of the young people in foster care and had a similar kind of epiphany of didn't realize that this was happening just in their neighborhood. 
And so if you haven't seen that movie, I recommend it. I think it's an interesting look at an experience of one foster couple. The other thing is this someone else will help impulse that I think people have, right? And you didn't say that, but I think that's what what happens is people realize this has happened. They're like, well, someone else will help. The social workers take care of them. The government will take care of them. The churches will take care of them. I think there's this impulse in people that, an assumption maybe more than an impulse, that other people are going to help. But it's such a big problem throughout the country that we, we can't just let that assumption keep living on. We need to do something to change that so more and more people take action. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, even for a lot of the people that we, that they do take that next step sometimes and they give financially, which we need and it's fantastic. We also have this follow-up conversation of, hey, this is a, at the end of the day, this is very much a relational problem. It's a relationship thing where it does, it takes a lot of people to give of their time and to invest relationally in young people that have just in different times been separated from community, separated from society at different times. It takes real people to jump in and have relationships. Right. And it really is. I mean, fundamentally, the whole foster care system, the situation is a relationship problem because first of all, they're taken away from their family. And their family, when they were with their family, often have relationship problems, right? That's right. usually <laughs> a big part of the issues that young people face is the relationship issues and problems, lack of relationships or bad relationships, negative relationships. And so really what personally I think we need to focus on when we're helping these young people throughout foster care is helping them to build those connections, be it with people in their family, maybe extended family, or even their own parents, right? If it's rebuilding that relationship or connecting them with mentors or other adults that can support them because relationships, that's really the key thing to helping these young people succeed. Yes. Yeah, for sure. It seems like when I'm talking with young people and I'm trying to understand it from their perspectives, the themes that I hear one of the big ones is just that sense of being alone. So they're not, you know, I know, yes, they need a place to stay, they need food, they need jobs, education, all those things. But the, what I hear is, man, I just feel like I'm all by myself out here. Don't have anywhere, anybody to turn to. So yeah, yes, you're right. It is, at the end of the day, kind of the whole system is bound up in a series of broken or damaged relationships. Right. And the 50 placements that you commented right, on. right. All those relationships broken. Is there any question as to why there's a lack of trust? Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, let's talk about Immerse Arkansas. I want to hear about what it is that you do. So you started Immerse Arkansas with your wife? Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. When did that happen? And then what happened from there? Yeah, that was in 2010. You know, after that experience and after your house parents, I realized I needed just more education, got my master's in social work. We opened 2010 and had looked at some models in some different places in the country and had assembled an advisory team and all those kinds of things. But we opened and then within the first like four or five months there, it just didn't work. It didn't turn out how we thought it would. It didn't go how we thought it would. We weren't prepared. 
we didn't have the structure and the supports in place. But then the kind of just some real key individuals and donors and different stakeholders just dug in and said, hey, we've got to do this. This has to happen. And the community, in a way, really bought in. We just did that slow work of really trying to build something that helps young people as they're transitioning into adulthood. So we just got some things wrong early on, but we finally figured out that we needed houses and we needed RAs in those houses and we needed coaches working with the young people. And so in those first few years, we just, we built a transitional living program that we still operate today that happens in houses and in apartments. And it's typically 18 to 24 months long where young people are working on education and employment and their own well-being and building a community just with a whole goal of helping them practice adulthood and enter adulthood successfully. So that's still a real core component of what we do. Since that time, we've added what we would call some other steps in a continuum of support. So we have a youth center that's in a part of Little Rock that young people tend to come to when they are in bad situations. And we serve young people that are connected to the foster care system or should have been connected somehow. So they're homeless or they're runaway or they're trafficking victims. But young people can come and get their basic needs met, everything from showers and meals to clothes to the ability to meet with a coach who's going to help them put a life plan together and create goals and really get the wheels turning on whatever is next for them. We're also just, we broke ground a couple weeks ago on a shelter that's going to be just for young adults, just for 18 to 24 year olds. I know there's other states that have that. We don't have that in Arkansas. It's just been a missing piece of the puzzle for us. So shelter, youth center, transitional living program, and the kind of the last piece is just support that we provide to our alumni where we try and still cultivate community there and relationships, create ways for them to engage young people coming behind them and provide support, as well as sometimes when we need to kind of jump in and just provide some kind of tangible support to our alumni to prevent homelessness or other crises as they're going out into the world. So that's kind of broadly what's going on, what we're doing now. Okay. Let me go back and ask you a question based on something you said a little bit earlier. You said when you started out, <laughs> it was a little rough. Yeah. For the benefit of those who might be thinking about starting a program or maybe are new themselves, what were some of the hurdles that you encountered and any advice as far as managing those so that others might not you know, have to go through that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that part of the advice would be just starting with a significant, well, more structure than we started out, which is going to mean more people. So when we started out, it was truly my wife and I, and we had a social work intern. We had just had our first child at that time too. So there just wasn't a ton of structure. There wasn't a, the level of support probably needed to help the young people succeed. So, you know, now we know it really takes a, it's really helpful to have a full team where there's, we have a coach that has a, they've got a caseload of seven to nine young people that they're digging in deep with and able to build a connection, a deep plan with them. Also, that coach really needs a supervisor and somebody that can help guide them and troubleshoot challenges and 
and then having a therapist somewhere in the team that doesn't have to be internal that can be a through partnership it's just critical so anyway just starting out with a, a strong level of support seems important we also i think a mistake we made we started out by bringing young people from the foster care system and putting them directly into apartments in the community and i think for that works for some young people other young people need a higher level of structure and support. I think when they're coming sometimes out of a group home or something like that, and we just didn't know that, we assumed probably too much in that situation. So eventually we got to houses, which work well for us now. And you know, people can go from those houses that they share. It's typically three young people and one RA. So everybody's got their own bedroom and bathroom. I'm sorry, they share a bathroom, but everybody has their own bedroom. Once they reach a certain level of self-sufficiency, are able to then go on to an apartment and then out, you know, on their own from there. So I think two things there would be making sure that you've got enough of a team is important. And then two, it was helpful for us to have young people start out in houses in a communal setting before going into an apartment. That makes sense. All right. How many young people are you serving right now? We have room for about 60 in that program. That's got a, there's a few different tracks in that. So there's the, the track that I just described, which would be for 18 to 24 year olds. There's a track in there for youth who are pregnant and parenting. And then we just started a track a couple of years ago for 14 to 18 year olds who are in foster care. And so this came after several years of working primarily with youth 18 to 24. We kept having either the state or foster adoptive families bringing us young people at age 18 and saying, hey, we're done. We can't do this anymore. Families burning out and young persons, you know, frustrated. And it was a, just a point of frustration for us. So we just, you know, said, we wish it could have helped earlier in the process and maybe things could have been different. So we started, we kind of took everything that we took, everything that we'd learned with 18 to 24 year olds and just translated that to 14 to 18 year olds and also working with their placement and trying to help that be a, a stable placement so the young person's not moving around. So that's a piece of that transitional living program. Okay. Okay. So you have three tracks right. and the different housing situations. You mentioned houses. So I'm assuming you purchase houses and utilize those for the group housing. Yeah. So real practically, we own two of those houses. We rent two houses and we've got maybe at any given time, eight to 12 apartments that we rent as well. You know, we were always having conversations about right, what's the right mix and what works best, but that's what we're doing currently. So these apartments, how difficult is it to find landlords who will work with you? So we've been real fortunate in that regard, but I don't think that it's uncommon. We've found landlords that really care and they want to help and so they rent to us there's one landlord in particular that we rent most of those apartments from who gives us a deal on the rent and is just great to work with and it's been a really good relationship i think part of the benefit to the landlord is that we provide a lot of support to the young people so we're always on the property we are able to address things when they need to be addressed and 
we take care of repairs sometimes that we're responsible for and we try to be a good tenant. So there's that. And then even with a couple of those houses, one of those houses is owned by a, somebody who wants to support what's going on. So they also rent that to us at a reduced rate and we're just able to work it out. So, you know, sometimes when you're in the work, there might be an assumption that people are going to not want to help or there's going to be frustration because of some of the challenges that are inherent into some of this work. That's true. We've found that at times, but also at other times we've found people who really want to be a part of creating opportunities for the young people. I think when a lot of people learn about what these young people are facing and struggle with, they are, I would say, almost immediately interested in helping. Not always, but I think often. Because often they just aren't even aware that it's happening. Like you were saying earlier, when you were introducing your background and your story, you didn't even know it was happening in your area. So many people don't. And if they realize, you know what, I can help some young people through this, you know, being able to provide housing through a rental agreement, then I can certainly understand how you could find some landlords that would get on board. The only challenge is you have young people who have never lived in an apartment before. And I imagine the landlord is probably a little worried about the condition of the apartment with young people like that. So how do you work with the landlord to assure them that, you know, these young people aren't going to be an issue? Yeah. You know, I right, guess so real practically, we sign the lease. So we're going to take care of if something needs to be addressed or there's significant damage, we're going to pay for it. We're going to make it right. We can provide some level of assurance that we're not going to leave them high and dry. And then two, we have 24-7 on-call support for our young people. If there's crises or challenges, and there are, our team is going to show up and they're going to be present. And we're going to do what needs to be done. You know, those are things that have been built over time. And then you just kind of, I'm sure you're, you know, that process of just building trust with people and doing what you say you're going to do and taking care of challenges when they arise. And if something goes really poorly, addressing it and trying to prevent it from happening again. So that's just where the process that we're in and continue to go through. Okay. And do you have like a structure where the young people can learn life skills, you know, taking care of an apartment, taking care of a home, maintenance, expectations of a landlord? Do you have opportunities for them to learn all of this or is it really kind of coaching as you go? Well, it's definitely both, but there is that formal piece of here's what it means to be a renter and here's what it means to sign a lease and Here's what you're obligated to yourself. Here's how you pay rent. And here's renter's insurance. And, you know, even for the maintenance issues that the, these landlords manage, helping our young people navigate that process and be a part of that. Or for our houses, for our young people participating in some of that maintenance. You know, really try to make everything a learning opportunity. But then also in just that kind of that life skills piece of what's going on, our coaches are having those conversations and giving that training in terms of here's what it means to be a good tenant. Here's how you rent and go about that. There's hopefully both of those elements going on. Right. And do the young people pay you some kind of rent to get practice and the budgeting and all of that? Yeah, they do. They pay rent and that's becomes savings for them and they're aware of that when they participate in the program that goes back to them when they exit 
but that is just a, again like we're saying it's a real practical piece of being an adult is anticipating paying something on the first of the month so there's a little bit of a we use a sliding scale but again it's in the form of savings we take that really seriously and it's always such a whatever pace we're all always so excited when a young person transitions out and they've got you know a few thousand dollars to get started and they've got you know kind of a jump start going out such a great thing and do you help them then transition from your program into their own place do you have a a way to help them find their own apartment find a roommate maybe that kind of stuff yeah that's all driven by your coaches you know this is kind of one of those semi it's the reality semi-aspirational for us but we really try to be driven by milestones more than timing so rather than saying hey you've got 18 24 months in the program the goal is for that young person to get into safe and stable housing for there to be a clear sense that it's going to work and that's when that coach starts to to pull back and of course there's still aftercare and alumni support and all that after that but it's not a hey, time's over, good luck in your next apartment. The coaches, their role is to make sure that that young person is in, in a safe and stable situation. By no means is that that happen 100% of the time. I think realistically, we tend to be in the 70% range of that being successful. And that's for youth who are going to engage in the program for at least three months and you know, different things like that. So it's not a perfect system. We found that to be really helpful for young people in the process. Sure, sure. And the coaches you've mentioned, is this like akin to a mentor program? Coaches are paid staff. It'd be, it's kind of like a glorified case manager. Okay. <laughs> One of those things where we just said, you know, if we call them case managers, some of these young people have heard that term for so long. That means yeah. that's somebody sometimes who's more responsible for my life than I am is what that case manager. So we said, hey, Coach is a great analogy. Coaches don't get in the game. They're going to cheer you on and inspire you and equip you and train you, all those kinds of things. So right. those are our coaches. Okay. Okay. And they, I imagine they go through a formal training program when they're hired. Correct. Yeah. 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 And we're typically looking for people with social work or counseling or education backgrounds that already have a sense of the helping process. Okay. And how do you stay in touch with the young people after they leave your program? You have the alumni support, but I'm just wondering, I imagine it would be easy to lose touch with them. So how do you maintain those connections? Yeah, this is something that we're definitely, it's on our minds right now. It's an area for improvement and growth. There's a group of our young people who are going to naturally, like they're already inclined to stay connected and they're going to do it. We have a weekly meal that we call the gathering that is open and welcome to everybody that we'll have alumni pop into and it's just an easy way to, for them to connect. They also are going to stay connected with their coaches back to the relationships. Yes. You know, people are not asking typically for a program, they're asking for people. And so they're, you know, they stay connected to coaches that way. So there's some of that that is just going to happen from young people that want to engage that way. Kind of what we're hoping to do with the alumni program, have a full-time lead in that space. But we have a coach who's been here maybe seven or eight years now. It's just fantastic. And I think she'll probably lead in that. But where she's actively following up with young people, like, you know, three months, six months, 
year out, those kinds of things, checking on them, encouraging them, offering support where we can, or connections to, to other things is what we hope to do. Kind of alumni specific events where, you know, we're still doing fun stuff or doing experiential kind of learning things together with them. And then also we'd love to kind of hold them up to our broader community as great people to hire and great people to bring into their, their businesses somehow. So there's probably a lot that we hope to do in that space. We're probably, you know, somewhere in that C plus to B minus range right now in terms of how we're doing it. Well, I think that, you know, every program needs to always be aware of, you know, where those areas of opportunities are and find those ways of continual improvement because we can't always be perfect in everything, right? Right. <laughs> it's a growth process, particularly if you're expanding. So every time you expand and add a new program or service, there's going to be opportunities for improvements. And so I think that's great that you're aware of those and focused on it. But it's a tough situation, right? Staying in touch with Young people, especially when our world is so mobile right, right now, right? right? Young people can leave and go anywhere. Right, yeah. <laughs> so it's tough. And I certainly can appreciate the difficulty in staying on top of that. Yeah, and that makes me think, I'm sure that there are groups out there that are doing really well at that. That seems to be one of those things that's constantly changing. There used to be we had a Facebook group and then that does not work anymore. Nobody cares about that. So anyway, that could be, I'd love to connect with some other folks, even in your network of, you know, that are probably doing really good work in that space. That'd be helpful. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like a conversation topic. Maybe we can pull a meeting together and have people in our online community come together and brainstorm ideas. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'll keep that in mind. So I want to go back to, you had mentioned one of your tracks is for young people who are pregnant and parenting. This is something that I hear more and more from organizations that they're building this into their programming is to provide this specific support. So can you just share a little bit more about what that looks like for the young people? Sure. So real practically in terms of program design, we have a coach that has a capacity for six moms or dads, or it could be couples and their children. You know, it's very similar to what we would be doing in our other transitional living program. I think the thing that's helpful to think about, some of the things that are different is that both mom, typically mom, or we could say parent and child have their own file. That means that they both got their own goals that we're working on and that we're thinking about. You know, so for the parent, it's all the same things around well-being, education, employment, safe and civil housing, and their relational network, plus parenting and how to be a good parent, all those things. And then for the child, those developmental milestones and their health and their the different things in there that they need as well to develop. And then it's that coach is in there for that, sometimes the pregnancy and then with the mom through that birthing process and then getting through that, getting set up and getting employed again and walking through all that process. That's a lot of times what that looks like. We have a mom who will move in this week who has already got it. She's got a one-year-old, but she's essentially homeless. And so it's helping her kind of put the pieces together to be able to support herself. That's broadly what it looks like. It's the same idea as everything else in terms of a transitional living program. 
but it just comes down to now you've got a family unit that you're trying to encourage and make sure that each person involved in there is becoming healthy and stronger and that that family unit's becoming more cohesive. Parents are getting good at parenting, those kinds of things. And how many young people can you serve in this capacity? Just six right now. Six, six right. in their dependents. What would increase that is if it was a couple, you know, if they're a boyfriend, girlfriend, or a couple that was parenting a child together, then that would go up to seven or eight or whatever that is, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think it's a wonderful program. I think, like I said, I'm hearing more and more programs, organizations building this kind of service. And it's so needed. The statistics of young women coming out of foster care and getting pregnant is astounding. Yeah. Yeah. The numbers of young women who are pregnant, like within a year, within, I mean, I think it's something like 50% within a year. Mm. Wow. And then it grows like 75% within three years. It's just the numbers are huge. And they need that extra support, right? Yeah. Because not only do they have to learn how to take care of themselves, they have to learn how to take care of children too. So I really appreciate that you have that built into your program. Yeah. And as you ask me how many, it's like, oh man, no, 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 we need more. Because Arkansas in particular, just even outside of the child welfare system, has a high teen pregnancy rate. There's a lot of need. It's also just a really opportune time to help give support to somebody that sometimes it just takes a little bit of support to help them get onto that next step that gets them a lot closer to a place of stability. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Some young people just need that, you know, like you're saying, just a little bit of extra support and they'll make it. Others need more, but, you know, whatever we can provide, I think we need to look for those opportunities. But I am looking at the time and I want to be respectful of the time that you have today. So why don't we transition, if you don't mind, into the question about what the foster care system can do to improve how it is that they work with young people in getting them ready for adulthood, right? So the foster care system, right? <laughs> it's huge. And there are federal issues, there are state level issues, there are local level issues. I know it's complicated, but do you have any thoughts on generally speaking, what could be done better? You know, I think a lot of this to me boils down to in those teen years, it's critical that we're thinking about the young people becoming adults. I guess you know, our child welfare system so easily becomes fully in it, oriented towards safety, which it needs to, and that's so important, mostly geared towards younger kids' mentality. And it's just so easy to lose track of how these teenagers will be adults. So real practically, we, you know, as we look at the numbers for Arkansas, if a kid enters foster care after age 13, I think it's like an 80% chance that they're going to age out. It's something like, I don't have that right in front of me, 70, 80%. But we know real early, we know what's ahead for them. And so I think at least in Arkansas, we could do better to prepare those young people for adulthood sooner. I know legally and by policy, it says that we are the experience of working with young people as they turn 18 is they're not prepared. So a lot of times they're opportunities to get a job. There are opportunities to drive. There aren't some kind of the real risks that are needed in the teen years to become an adult. That would be, you know, just one wish is could we give way more attention to those teen years with an eye on how do we help this 
young person be successful in those 18 to 24 years. Right. And I have always been a proponent of somehow building in expectations when the young people are in the system and even middle school. Yeah. Think about those who aren't in foster care. When do you start learning life skills? Well, you learn them even from elementary school. Okay. Helping with the laundry, helping with the dishes, cooking dinner for the family now and then, you know, with some help from the parents. So these are little things that help build the skill set so that young people are more ready at 18. Not to say that all people who aren't in foster care are ready at 18. That's not what I'm implying, but there are the opportunities are there for learning. And unfortunately, I don't think there's much accountability, if any, with group homes or foster parents to teach these skills. It's really up to the individual group home leaders. It's up to the individual foster parents as to whether and how much they do. Yeah, I agree with you on that, what you were saying. And I also think even, you know, going back to elementary and middle school, I just wish there was a way to build in that accountability. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's, I'm sure there's a way to do it. So hard to make a policy to help people have a mindset of raising, of building an adult rather than simply comforting or caring for a child, which is important, but somebody's got to have an eye on those adult years and helping build that. Yeah. I like the way you put that building an adult. That is a mindset. And unfortunately, the numbers of foster parents that are needed are too great to be able to pick and choose from the pool of people who want to be foster parents say, well, we'll only take those who have that mindset. Unfortunately, it's just not there. It is just too much of a, a need to bring in. We just need people, right? That's unfortunately where we are. Can you teach that mindset? Like I said, you'd almost have to build in the accountability into the agreement. Yeah. And, you know, it gives me some hope in this as it seems like in the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, we're making progress. I don't think we're totally there, but there's been a, a greater shift towards a mindset of helping kids heal, where I don't think that was there. Maybe t I didn't sense that as much maybe 10 years ago, but there's been a shift, I think, at least here in Arkansas, in the mindset of the broader foster and adoptive community, a deeper, better understanding of trauma, those kinds of things. Oh, yeah. It just makes me wonder if there's a way or there's a path to helping cultivate some of the mindset around developing adults as well. Well, I do know that the majority of nonprofits that work with these young people, in particular those aging out, because those are the organizations I'm familiar with, that they certainly have that mindset yeah. and are trying to fill the gaps, right? Like your organization is where the foster care system might not be able to, based on its current structure, be able to help these young people prepare fully. These organizations like yours are stepping in and helping where they can, mm -hmm. yeah. which is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And yeah, we're grateful to be a part of it and just so impressed anytime we can see other things going on in other places of the country where folks are doing the kind of work that you're talking about that encourages us and inspires us and gives great ideas. So it is neat to see that community in action. Exactly. Yes, there are a lot of organizations and more and more are started. Colleges, universities are 
more and more of them are building in programs to support young people aging out of foster care, not just scholarships, right? Actually having some support of people who can build those relationships that we're talking about. I'm very optimistic about the nonprofit side of the support and how it's growing. And awareness is growing. Yes, for sure. Which is critical. That's a critical first step. Yeah. Last thing I guess I'll say about that is, yeah, when we started out, we were trying to educate people on what it meant to age out of foster care. We're rarely having that conversation anymore. It's more okay. folks are saying, you know, what are y'all do? I've heard that's an issue. I'm so glad you're doing that. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Well, Eric, I thank you so much for participating in this podcast. Is there anything else that you wanted to share about your program that we haven't already covered? We covered a lot. But I want to give you one last chance here if there's anything else. Like, for example, I don't know, your website URL <laughs> in case someone wants to donate to your program. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It's immersearkansas.org, all spelled out. No, I think the only other, I would just reiterate what I said in terms of we're learning. We want to learn more, love to collaborate with others who are in the space or others who have great ideas and I'm just hopeful, you know, Lynn, I'm so impressed with all the work that you've done. I can't, you know, wait to see even five, 10 years from now, how we're able to advance what we're all doing collectively to help young people as they age out of care. Thank you. That's one of our goals is to build the best practices, right? To come together and brainstorm and solve problems and help the folks who are new to this space be able to get up and running faster with better programming, you know, all of that. I think that's really what we're hoping for here. That's awesome. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate you saying something about it. Well, I do want to thank you again. And for those who have listened to the end of this podcast, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. Keep checking back on our website, agingoutinstitute.org. And you just look for the podcast link in the menu and you'll find all of our podcasts there. And we also send these out through pretty much any podcast distribution app or platform. You can find us there as well, preparing foster youth for adulting. So thank you very much for listening to the end. Until next time. <laughs>